All right, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsher hanging out with Richie Ote. What's up, my brother? How are you? How are you? White Wade's got under control in the studio. Kelly's got under control back at headquarters. And here on Beyond Eight Figures, we do sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million annually and get to the bottom of how they started and scaled and in some cases exited from that business. And uh, this will be really interesting. I um, I have to admit, TK, and we're talking to TK Cater. Uh, I have to admit, I, I was not familiar with who you were. I did a lot of research and dug into it. And man, you've done some amazing things, man. What What are you like? <laughs> are, you, are you even thirty five yet? I'm thirty six. Thirty six. Yeah. Words. Yeah. Excited there to be you go. Here. Yeah. Thirty six. Man, super impressive, dude. So. Really appreciate you hanging out with us here on Beyond Eight Figures. And um, as we get a look into, by the way, for those who don't know, we do this live every Thursday uh, at either 12 or 1 p.m. Pacific. This happens to be a 1 p.m. Pacific show, and uh, typically we do it at noon Pacific. And you guys are always welcome to join us there at beyond8figures.com. And, uh, of course, if you have any questions uh, for our guests, you're welcome to join in uh, on the conversation as well. And just give us a jingle at 866 977-2346. But as we look deep into your condo there, what, what part of the world are you joining us from, first of all? I'm uh, I'm in Dallas, Texas. Right Dallas, now. Texas. I would not have pegged yeah. you for a Dallas guy. Is that a new thing? It's a new thing. I spent I grew up in New York. I was born in Bangladesh. I uh, moved to New York when I was 10. Uh, went to school in New York. Uh, spent the last nine years in California and moved to Dallas earlier this year. Interesting. So are you the, the just the sort of quintessential rags to riches? Your parents came here with nothing from Bangladesh. And like, is that is that their story or, or were you royalty in Bangladesh and you brought the uh, the silver spoon and the whole nine with you? Uh, no, my dad moved here with a thousand dollars. I started working for him when I was 12. Mm. Handed out flowers in the street corner, and it uh, went from there. So, wow, a cliched, a cliched success story, I guess. Yeah, yeah, man. So, and that's interesting, right? And and we often have this conversation in terms of whether or not entrepreneurs uh, can be made, or if they're just straight up born. It's kind of the nature versus nurture conversation. I happen to believe that that uh, nature wins every time, and no matter where you are, you're going to fall right back to that tree. And a lot of people argue, well, nurture can win, right? You can get under the the guidance of the right people. And I know you're all about peak performance, you know, and the whole nine. And it's interesting. We'll get into this a little bit in terms of conferences and we'll have that discussion and whatnot, sort of the conference junkies and, and you know, the whole, because there's that whole world. But so your dad actually was an entrepreneur then. I, I mean, obviously, if you said you worked for him, it was his own thing. What was he doing? Yeah. So my dad was an entrepreneur back in Bangladesh for starters. He had the first color lab in Bangladesh. What does so that you, mean? It, remember when you had to go to the lab to get your pictures printed from your camera? Ah, yes, and yes, so yes. he opened up the first, he did the first biz dev deal with uh, Konaka in Japan. And you literally couldn't get color pictures until he opened up his business. He got color pictures in Bangladesh. And that's how you got color pictures printed. Uh, so he was an entrepreneur, crazy entrepreneur doing biz dev deals internationally and back in Bangladesh. And then we moved to New York and started. He started a calling center and prepaid calling card business. So he, he's been an entrepreneur through and through. That's where I learned a lot. And just so we're clear here, and we'll get this out of the way early, how do you meet the criteria then for beyond eight figures? Do you currently run a business that grosses more than ten million annually? Did you exit from a business for more than ten million or both? 
Yeah, uh, we ran, I started my own company. Uh, it was called ToutApp. We ended up selling it for 10 million in cash and stock, uh, 10 million plus. And then I became an executive at Marketo, uh, did that for two years. That was private equity owned. Uh, and we sold Marketo to Adobe for 4.75 billion. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to Tout then. Was that your first real, so to speak, entrepreneurial endeavor? Or had you been doing other things and there were failures and successes before that? I've been doing other things. Uh, kind of depends on what you define as real versus not. The quick story on me is I started my first company uh, while I was in college. We started a company called uh, HipCal. It's an online calendaring service. And by the time we graduated college, we got bought by a company out on, in Silicon Valley. Mm. And so that was the first. Uh, we were bootstrapped. We sold textbooks and ran, paid for the servers through that. And so that was the first, first like entrepreneurial startup journey. And ToutUp was my second one. And so are you the programmer? Like, are you the one who comes up with the idea? Because you're in this app world and so on. And I know a lot of people have great ideas for, hey, we could create something that would do this. And we can create something that would do that. But they can't actually do it. So right. did you, do, do you have the benefit of actually being someone who can do it? Or do you just know people who can and you bring those folks in? I actually got a double degree. So I have a degree in computer science and a degree in business. And I've always loved both, but never pick between the two. Mm. So um, I, I'm, I'm a programmer. I coded, I, I coded for Tout and I coded for uh, HipCal. It got to a point, though, where my engineers at Tout literally would not let me code anymore. They, apparently, my, apparently, I'm a terrible coder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so they got kicked out of the, I got kicked out. So, so to that end, though, HipCal, and, and that wasn't selling textbooks. That You're saying you sold textbooks to fund that, right? Or, yeah, we yeah. sold textbooks to fund that. To fund right. that, yeah. So what, so what did HipCal do? It was an online calendar. So this is before Google Calendar came out, and everything was moving to the web, and, but there was no online web-based calendar. And we had complicated schedules, and we just put a little calendar online and with a to-do list. And the little innovation there was you could join other groups. Mm. So I could join my fraternity's calendar and I could join my classes calendars and all that would flow in. And uh, we scaled to, we probably had about 50,000 plus users. We won awards. It was crazy. We were a bunch of kids in upstate New York just doing what we really loved doing and it took off from there. What was the, what was the revenue model on that one? There was no revenue. It was completely <laughs> free. <laughs> so... Did you raise, so the, I mean, that begs the question then, I mean, right? So this is, uh, and a lot of folks have these same sort of questions, which is, you know, of course, there is the business side of the equation in terms of actually making money. And then there is the, the side of the equation of we're just going to ramp this thing up. We're going to get to a certain number of users, and then we're going to go ahead and exit. You were in that latter category. How did you, how did you eat? How did you fund life? Like that was the textbook thing. So you were selling the textbooks that was funding life. And you just, the goal was in that, in, in that endeavor, let's yeah, build it up to a couple of users and, and sell it. There, there was no, so that one, we started a company and we didn't know about raising money. We didn't know that about Silicon Valley. We were and I'm just sorry, is this the, and just so we're clear, is this the euphemistic we like, or it was there actually you and other people? This was not, this is not the royal we. There the were five of, <laughs> this is, there was five of us. Oh, there it was were. My, my freshman year roommate and I, 
and three other three other guys. Uh, we all got together. It, it started as a class project for someone. One of the guys that was co-founder Garrett, and then he brought us brought the rest of us in, and we started that. This was HipCal. We started that because it was just cool. It was fun. Yeah. We wanted to build something, and the web was becoming a. This was in 2006. The web was becoming a bigger and bigger thing. And people were putting their data and using services. And we're like, we want to be part of this. And so we went into it because it was awesome and we saw a problem and we wanted to solve it. And we knew eventually you had to figure out a revenue model. And we had a couple of ideas on that. But initially, it was all about how do we get more users to see if there's a thing here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so was can you share the the exit then? Was that what, was it a six-figure? Did you get to seven figures? What was the exit on, on that one? That that exit, it, it, from a monetary perspective, there was nothing to report on. Mm. It was five college kids. And our default was we would go get jobs at IBM or GE. And instead, they came and said, hey, we'll give you six-figure salaries straight out of college. We'll also give you cash up front for this thing that you built. We'll fly you out to California and come work with us and help us build an even better calendar. That was mm -hmm. the pitch. That was way more compelling than going to work for IBM or GE. And, and was that Google? No, that was a company called Plaxo. Okay. And Plaxo was, uh, so uh, before Facebook, Sean Parker, who's one of the guys you might have seen in the social network yeah, movie. Yeah, sure. Yeah, he's, he started Plaxo. He was always been interested in this whole network address book thing. That was what Plaxo was. Interesting. So five guys, you build this thing up, you stay dedicated, you do the marketing the whole night. Okay, that makes sense. So uh, you go to Plaxo, you're sitting there and you're saying, I got to get back into this world of entrepreneurship. It's like you, you didn't want to be under somebody's thumb. What how, what happened at that point? Because it sounds like, I mean, obviously, if you know, you got uh, one of the original founders of uh, Facebook involved there. I mean, I, this is not a, you know, Sean's a smart dude, right? So, I mean, being able to work with him and and do what he was doing and so on. Probably not a terrible gig. So uh, a couple of nuances. So uh, Sean Parker had moved on by then, but uh. it was still an incredible company. And I worked there for a year and a half and I, I didn't like Silicon Valley. Uh, so Silicon Valley at that time was uh, one of the places where everyone was trying to be like Facebook. Everyone wanted to be the next social network. Everyone wanted to be the next hip consumer company. Mm -hmm. And this might sound a little weird and funny, but I, I really wanted to learn more about companies that made money, which it, it can sound kind of funny because Facebook is an incredible company. They grew on to be incredible, but the ethos at that time had a lot to do with how do we just get a lot of users? And I knew I wanted to understand how businesses that get built and have profits and cash flows would work. Mm -hmm. And so incredible opportunity. Plaxo ended up selling, I think it was for almost... 160 million or something wow. to Comcast. Uh, I worked on the Comcast project at Plaxo. It was awesome. And eventually, um, I thought about starting another company again, and that felt a little scary. Funnily enough, I, I wasn't quite ready. And so I got recruited uh, back east by a hedge fund that was out of Westport, Connecticut. And uh, the hedge fund was uh, Bridgewater, Ray Daly's Bridgewater. Mm. And I ended up joining them and working over there for three and a half years, just learning about the markets, building out technology systems for running that hedge fund. And obviously Bridgewater's number one hedge fund in the world. Uh, so le learned a ton there. 
Yeah. Interesting. I mean, you, you start, and, and by the way, first of all, I wish I had found you in Silicon Valley around 2000. Did, what, what year did you leave Silicon? What, what year were you out of there? 2007. Okay. So long story short, I actually have been involved and am no longer involved, but had been involved with liquor.com. I actually bought that domain in 1998. And so nice. uh, lost it for a few years in the crash and then got it back. And in 2009, I went to Silicon Valley to find partners to help build that business. And for the better part of 10 years until we just sold it to IAC, it was it was like banging my head against the wall because I wanted to freaking sell something and actually make money. And, <laughs> and they were just like, let's just get users and traffic in this. And it was like this. Where where is this taught? Like who who who, who builds a business this way? Like I anyway. That was 10 years of headache that uh, brain damage I'll never be able to replace those cells on. <laughs> so, all right. So, I mean, my Lord, Sean Parker, Ray Daly. I mean, you're, you're working under incredible people. So that's got to build a pretty solid foundation for what's next. And, and is, is tout then the next thing for you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it, was, it, was a, it was one of the toughest decisions. You know, the natural thing for me would have been after Plaxo to go start another company and stay in Silicon Valley, but something drew me to Bridgewater and I'm glad it did because I learned so much. I bet. Uh, after Bridgewater, I was ready. I was like, I, I got to do a company. It's now or never. I was, I was 27 at the time. And I'm oh like, man, life was almost over. I'm like, 20, 27. <laughs> there's this whole thing of like, the, the thing I always ask myself when I was 27 is uh, what would 40 or 50 year old me tell 27 year old me? Mm. And most certainly 40-year-old me and 50-year-old me would have way more responsibilities than 27-year-old me had. And so it was, sure. it was a little bit of like, dude, are you kidding me? Like, why would you not take this risk? And even though it's, it was scary at that moment. Yeah. And, and Bridgewater was great to me. Like, you made a ton of money. I had my own office. Like, it was awesome. And it's hard. Even when you're entrepreneurial, it's hard to walk away from cushiness and go, go back to the abyss to go find an idea and to build something. Yeah, for sure, man. So, and Richie, I know you got a million things here. Please just, jump it's in. It's just one super quick one with this. I'm still interested as to, did they recruit you at Bridgewater to build something for them? Because that's an interesting transition to go from doing this calendar and working at Plaxio to now you're heading back to New York and going to work with a hedge fund. Yeah. To, uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny because... At that time, Bridgewater, I think it was only about 150 people, 200. There, it was early. It was small. They were just, they just wanted smart people. To be honest, I don't think they knew what they wanted me to work on. They were like, "We, you should be here. We want smart people that can go build incredible technology. Even within my first month or two, I, I literally had to ask my question, the question to the men, like, what do you want me to work on? And they're like, we're figuring it out. And then it ended up being an incredible project that I worked on. Um, but I think they just wanted smart people. I, I, I'm not calling myself smart. I, like that was like literally the answer they gave. Like we just want smart people here, and then we'll figure out what they what they work on. <laughs> must must be nice to just have a few hundred million dollars just sitting there in cash that you can just throw out and see what sticks. So, Bridgewater has more money than well, I know, but I'm I'm <laughs> extra being money. a little conservative on that. Yeah. Just I was yeah. saying, oh, exactly. I was saying extra money. <laughs> extra. To, yeah, just like yeah. like pocket change is really what I was saying. So let's so let's play this out all right so you're sitting there obviously you know at, at some point you go geez i gotta now or never make this leap tout is what 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 was the idea for tout like are you sitting there somewhere do you get this 
Like, is it a, is a is it just like a uh, just I don't know. Like, in, does inspiration strike? Are you like, how does the idea for Tout come it, it up, was, and what is it? It's the most absurd story. So I started working on this other idea. It was called Brain Trust, and the the, the way the idea was that you have these groups of people that, and this happened in Bridgewater and every other company I worked on. You had all these email threads where like five, 10 people were on the email thread discussing stuff and trying to make, get to a decision. And my whole thing was like, this is hugely inefficient and there's, it's a massive, an email is the worst place to do it. So I wanted to create this thing called brain trust where you get five to 10 people together. That's your brain trust. And you can have these discussions and you can vote and you can get to consensus and it's all online and it's all like threaded and clean and mm -hmm. makes perfect sense, right? And so I got brain trust out there. I built it out. I'm out and I'm trying to get more users. We get a couple of paying users. It's kind of going, but it's just not clicking. Like it's not taking off. And I decided, you know, what would be better if I just go and email people that would find this valuable and tell them to check it out. And the engineer in me was like, all right, well, that sounds like a lot of work. I should build this tool that does it. Cause it's like, if I'm, emailing an entrepreneur, then it should be this message. If I'm emailing um, someone that is uh, head of marketing, then it should be this message. If it's HR, then it's this message. If it's this kind of company, then it's this message. And I wanted an easy way to do that. And so I built this tool over the weekend hmm. to actually figure out how to pitch these people. And I built it for myself. And because I had been working on this other idea for so long and copied a bunch of the code, and copied the landing page and the billing system, all this complicated stuff I built for brain trust. I just copied it over and I launched that extra tool that I created for myself as a product too over the course of a weekend, three days. And all it did was you put in an email address and a name of a person, and then you choose the template, like what, what email template you want to use. It fills it in for you and then you customize it and you hit send. Mm. And, uh, and I launched it. And within a day, we had almost 100 people sign up and it started generating money. Wow. So on one hand, I had this thing called brain trust that like no one really wanted and it solved this complicated problem and I thought it was a billion dollar company. On the other hand, I built a simple tool that just helped salespeople send out emails and engage with people in a very personalized way and it just started to take off. So just to be clear, so it's just you... You built this over the course of a weekend. There's no team. There's no anything. Yeah. How do you get 100 people to sign up for it in, in a matter of days? Uh, I did two things. One, um, so one of the things that's worked really well for me in marketing is to always share your journey. Not under the brand of whatever company you're building, but as the founder. And so, share in social, share in video. What, what When you say share, what do you mean? Yeah. So... Back then, it was more blogging. So mm -hmm. I basically wrote a blog post on how I built this app in three days. And I posted it on my blog, my personal blog. Personal. And, okay. and I shared it. Uh, there's this thing called Hacker News. It's an online website where you can post links. And it's run by Y Combinator, uh, which is uh, the startup incubator. Mm -hmm. And I posted it there, and it just took off. Like People were like interested in how I built an app within, within three days, and it's fully functioning. And it actually has value and people are signing. So that was one. The other thing I did, which helped me a ton, was 
uh, I knew that the type of people that would use this were also in sales and salespeople always use CRMs. Mm -hmm. So I integrated it over the weekend um, to one of the CRM providers. Uh, it was called HiRise. And I sent him an email saying, hey, I built this thing. It's over the weekend. It's live now. We have some users. It integrates into you so you can promote it. And they promoted it to their mailing list of probably 250,000 people. Wow. And uh, it's much bigger now. And so, yeah. and, and that, that email got us a whole bunch of users as well. That was very targeted. Mm -hmm. What was the price point? $30 a month. $30 a month for templatized emails. That's right. Wow. Uh, here was the trick. So the trick was the, you could sign up for free and you could send a templated email for free. And once you sent the templated email, it would then say, hey, do you want to know when they opened the email or clicked on the link? Mm -hmm. Pay $30 a month. And that upsell just like clicked in right away because everyone wanted to know. They wanted to know if the other person looked at it or they looked at the link and then respond back. Mm -hmm. And all, like within three days, like we added that tracking feature and that just like took off. So take us then through how the company evolved. So now you know you're onto something. You have these <laughs> initial base of users. It doesn't seem like you need to build a, a, a tremendously large team to, you know, to, to get this thing to grow. I mean, it's, it's infinitely scalable and you put some customer service people on or maybe some programmers on to fix some bugs or those sort of things. What was your next step? So I ignored it for six months. You ignored it for six I, months. I ignored it for six months and I just let it ride. And people just kept signing up and they kept paying. We, I, I, we, did, we got feature requests. First version of the product, you couldn't bold a word in the email. You mm -hmm. could only send plain text emails. So that was our most popular feature request. So for $32 a month, you can bold one of these words <laughs> and find out if they opened it or not. Nice, nice. And so I ignored it because... For me, I wanted to build a, a, a big software company. That was my goal. And I wanted to build a startup, which is a very different play than trying to build uh, a small business, if you will. Uh, the, the growth scale, the type of funding you do, all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to work on brain trust. I, I'm like, this brain trust thing, this coll group collaboration thing, this replacing email thing is going to be huge. And this email thing that's a tool like this is not going to get that far like, this is this is dumb i'm not going to do it and so for six months i ignored it until pete pete curley who was my co-founder from the previous company him and i were talking and he's like so what's going on with brain trust i'm like i don't know man it's just like not taking off and it's a lot of work to get people into it he's like what's going on with that other thing that the the tout thing and i'm like oh that thing it just keeps making money like, it's just running uh, and we had passed a thousand users. It just kept making more money. And he's like, let me get this straight. On one hand, you're trying to replace email and no one cares. And the, on the other hand, you made email just a little bit better and people are paying you $30 a month for it. What is wrong with you? <laughs> and this was one of the, one of the things like, you know, sometimes things seem simple and you discount it and you don't really pay it much heed. And I'm like, yeah. well, there's a, there's a point here. And so that's when I came up with one of my principles, like to never bet against email. And so I decided mm -hmm. to create another version of Tau. Like I, I looked through all the customer feedback. So six months in, are you at a thousand users? Uh, six months in, we're a thousand users, and uh, we that but that includes free, not all paid. I got you. And we were probably at around fifty to a hundred paid users, ah. uh, paying at thirty dollars a month. So 
there's still like, look, the, it, yeah. it's running on like a fifty dollar server and just right. sending emails. Like, yeah. But overhead, <laughs> overhead, and and one of the best parts about that business, one of the things I did was every single time someone entered their credit card to become a customer, I would get a text message. Just and 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 I rigged it so that every time I got the text message from that number. It would make a cash register. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. right. And right. and you just those the number of chachings on a daily basis just kept going up. Like it was just on its own. And I'm like, there's clearly something here. Yeah. And, and, you, so, and you never turn it off. So the girls in your life were kind of like, can you just <laughs> turn it off for a minute? You're like, no, baby, hold on, hold on, one more chaching. It's, it's, it's gonna get better. Yeah. It's gonna get better. <laughs> <laughs> I did get asked the question like, when are you gonna turn it off? I'm like, never. I'm never gonna turn it off. Like, and did you did you add the vibration feature to the chaching? So <laughs> no. All right, fine. All right. So, but again, we're we're a solo guy. We've got this idea, and uh, you know, never bet against email. Love that. Uh, how do you turn this into an actual company? Yeah, so we, I just, I decided that first it was like, okay, shut down brain trust. So Smart. That, that, that was an emotional thing. And I'm like, all right, it's done. Then it was like, okay, how is this more than just an email to me? Like, what, what does this mean? And why is this important? Why are people so into it? And so that's when I said, I took a hard look at it and really talked to all the customers. And I realized, wow, there's something bigger here. And that's when we decided to go ahead and raise uh, venture capital and grow the company. I'm trying to understand why you would do that. Like, what was the, because we know venture capital is expensive. You bootstrap this thing. And given how your father operated, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure your dad never raised venture capital, just a hunch. Or did, right. he? or did he? No, he didn't. No, right. no, no, he didn't. Right. No. So you get uh, you get in that whole Bridgewater world and it's like, ooh, you know, it's, it's like enticing, it's appealing, it's sexy. It's like this whole big thing. But at the same token, you have a really good product. Yeah. And you're a really good process. He's got like, you're a, you're a super smart dude. So why cut off anything at that point? I think, I think the thing is, uh, the, the question was, what is the opportunity here? Uh, is the opportunity here a little tool that helps you send some emails? Or is the opportunity that every company has this one need? They need more pipeline. And if you can help create more pipeline and you can help actually own the attention of every salesperson and how they operate, there was that bigger vision that emerged. And that's where it was no longer a, bootstrap play but it was more of a venture play so you go out and what was the valuation that you went out with in a series a so it went in stages actually we didn't go in with the series a you we didn't. started uh, so the first thing that happened was um, we joined an accelerator program out in california and uh, it was 500 startups and mm -hmm. they're, great they're, group. They're, yeah they're a great group we were batch number one for their wow, accelerator really? program. Wow. Yeah. So, so literally, uh, there, there, so there was, I was in New York and there were two programs um, that I, uh, there was three programs. There's Y Combinator, which is the gold standard. There's tech, uh, there's uh, Techstars, which had a footprint in New York. And there was uh, 500 startups. Y Combinator, notoriously known that they will just not invest in solo founders. So if it's just you, they're just like, look, find a co-founder, otherwise don't talk to us. Mm -hmm. I think they've softened on that now, but they, uh, back then they didn't. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to uh, go there. I talked to the Techstars guy, and he literally was like, love it, 
find a co-founder and we'll talk. I'm like, cool, bro. Like, okay. And Dave McClure, who was from 500 Startups, he's like, hey, man, uh, I'm in. I'll invest. Um, by the way, you should do the Accelerator program. Just come to California for the summer and we'd love to have you. And so the, he put in a 50K check. And back then, we, we didn't set a valuation. You did it on a convertible note. And the convertible note kind of defers like having to set up a valuation. Mm-hmm. You do it on some sort of discount. So we did a 20% discount. Uh, and we, so he was one of the first ones in. And we basically built out a 250K round that helped us uh, actually start to build out the team, get some more engineers. I moved the company to California and uh, go through the accelerator program. And then we went on to raise, we did a, the advisory round, we did a seed round of about 950K. Uh, between those two, that helped us get to a million ARR. Once we got to a million ARR, we raised a $3 million Series A. That helped us get to 3 million ARR in a year. Uh, once we got to 3 million ARR, we raised, uh, raised uh, our Series B. And that got us uh, another two years, got to about 7 million ARR, and then we sold the company. So that's so, like the high level of how it came together. Yeah. And so take us through your ownership journey in terms of you started 100%. The convertible note doesn't matter at that point. But when you get to that first real round, how much did you cut off for the, real, for the first round? You remember? I mean, the, the, yeah. The, the way it goes, roughly speaking, it was always about 20% cut. Uh, so every venture around that you do, you're giving away anywhere from 20 to 25 percent mm-hmm. on on average, mm-hmm. and we were right around there. Like we were at the 20 percent mark. Uh, the Series B might have been just a tad bit more, but mm-hmm. um, uh, that's that's how we did it. Gotcha. And so, if I'm following the math here, you you ended up with a little less than half when you exited. Uh, that's right. You you. So the way, the way you do it is you give away 20% each round. What you also do is carve out 15% out of the pool for employee options. Oh, you had an employee and stock option pool. And so, yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 So yeah. That, you cut that out. So the founder, as a, so as a solo founder, I ended up with about, uh, about 20% of the company by the time we sold the company. About 20%. Interesting. And so your philosophy was let's get to 20% of something meaningful or 30% of something meaningful or whatever it is as opposed to let me just hold on to 100% of this thing and just see what so it, different philosophies for sure absolutely it's it's a it's a different philosophy i i don't like i've done bootstrap businesses i've done uh venture backed and it is 100% dependent on what you're trying to do mm-hmm. venture is works when you are trying to take on something very very big highly risky and you want to just go for it Mm-hmm. And there's nuances on what is appropriate and what's not and how fast you go and how much you raise and how much you burn. But generally speaking, it's a high risk game. And yeah. that's just a different philosophy. I'm interested in knowing when once you knew you wanted to do this bigger vision and you saw it as a entry level pipeline for all these salespeople. How much did the investors um, did they uh, not how much, but when they invested, did you did they also introduce you to other companies that they worked with? Was that part of the uh, your uh, ability to gain new customers, or did you have to hire a sales force too? Like they invested yeah. in you, and then they hey introduce you to company A, B, and C. Yeah, 
every round that we did, like when he started with the accelerator program uh, with 500 startups, every single other company that was in the accelerator with us or in the portfolio, including 500 startups themselves, became customers. They started using the product. And that was one of the benefits like of having a product that just about every company with a sales team or a biz dev person needs. And so that was hugely beneficial. Going the venture route for us, having 500 startups, and then we ended up raising our Series A from Jackson Square Ventures, their boutique firm out of California. And then our Series B was backed by Andreessen Horowitz, which is one of the best VC firms in the world. Having those guys every single time, not only did they help us get more customers, but it added a level of brand credibility mm. uh, when it came to recruiting executives and recruiting employees. So from that aspect, you know, there's the bootstrap game where you're trying to build a mini brand for yourself. But when you're doing the venture route, you get to attach your brand to some of these established brands. And that makes a huge difference in everything that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Let me just go one, two, three, four, five, step back, step backwards here and just make sure I'm clear on this. Who, who was your key hire? As you look back on Tout, like if there was one person that really helped you to, to move the needle and go from that solopreneur phase to now we've got a, a real business, and I'm sure there were multiple people, but, it, but as you look back, who was that one key hire or maybe two key hires that really helped propel that business forward? Yeah. I, the first one was uh, our first, so I, I coded Tout. 100% of Tout was my code. Wow. And uh, By the way, you didn't keep that and license that to the company, did you? Like you didn't retain ownership of the code and license it to the company? No, that was all under, uh, assigned as IP under the, the C-Corp. Gotcha. And I was an employee into the C-Corp. We kept all that stuff clean, especially if you're, you want to make you want to build a business where you are the owner and you get, can be removed and so i thought about that from the beginning mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and so uh the first person that you know almost like i refer to him i was i was a solo founder he joined the business steven stefan joined the business a year after i'm sorry did his family really do that steven stefan like they his uh, name is steven stefan come on yeah. man you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think be, it's a badass name. Yeah, that'd, be, mean, that'd be an ESPN. Come on, man. You know, it's <laughs> Stephen, that's good. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah and so he, uh, he joined after, but he was engineer, truly, truly engineer number one. And he was along for the whole ride. Mm. And he was, that was the first time where I was able to step away from the coding and the engineering side of the business and really be CEO. And I had a rule uh, that I, I pledged to myself that I would not put CEO on my business card until we had at least 15 employees. Mm. Uh, like there's nothing you're chiefly executing over. Like you're just not uh, uh, like, <laughs> like, like, what are you doing? And so I always, I had founder and he was one of the guys that really allowed me to go take on that CEO hat that was much needed at, at the later stages of the business because he took over the engineering side of the business. So he was number one. And uh, I, I would say number two was our, one of our first execs that joined and again, stayed with us for the longest time, Cliff Kate. Cliff came, he was an experienced guy, experienced executive, was our VP of customer success. He, he, was, he joined us when we only had 14 employees 
and he was one of he was one of our first VP hires along with Eileen who was a VP of sales. And he stayed with us the entire time and he really helped me as a founder, as a 20-year-old kid, like really grow into an executive mm-hmm. as we scale the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. And was there a, a, a board decision that we're going to take this out to market? Did you know it was time when it, when it came time to exit? And, and it's tough, right? I mean, it's your baby and you, you built a couple of things at this point already, but it's still your baby. Did you get pressure to exit? Did you have was this always part of your game plan five years and out? Like, how were you? Take us through the exit. Our story was crazy. So, uh, we ended up getting into a point, and this is, this is part of the venture business. We got to a point where we were, we actually overextended ourselves. We were burning too much cash. Our runway was shrinking. Simultaneous to that, this is a period of time when the stock market, uh, the the stock market uh, took a blip. It was uh, one. Of, it was early 2016 when every tech stock took a da- nosedive. Mm. And every time you go fundraise, the valuation on a company is done on a comp to similar uh, public market companies. Mm-hmm. And so that's a bad time to fundraise. So we so we entered that period. We had a we lost a board member. I was going through a divorce, and we had overextended ourselves. And so the company almost died, actually. And so we were burning too much. We were running out of cash. We couldn't raise another round. And we were like, oh, my God, like, what is going to happen? And this was probably about six or five years running into the business, running the business. And uh, that's when we actually took a long, hard look at ourselves. And we we're like, OK, what do we do? Like, if we can't raise, do we switch to uh, profitability? Do we shut it down? Do we just give up? Do we try to get an exit opportunity? That was one of the most toughest point, toughest points in the in, in my career and the history of the company. And I think like every company goes through something like that. No company is ever up and to the right. There's always twists and turns on the road. And that was probably when I learned the most about real fundamentals and real just like that's where you earn the scar tissue as a yeah. CEO and a founder. So did you then just say, hey, we we need to we need to cut back. We're burning too much. We need to run this in the black and and just and we can't raise and we don't want this thing to die. So you know it's tough, but Ada, you got to go. We need to focus on sales. We're not doing any more R and D. We're just like, how? What was that line in the sand for you? What did what did that look like? Yeah, we that was one of those where I I did two layoffs at, to right size the company, which was super painful. Yeah, and then uh, but but. That was probably the year we learned the, the most. The short end of the story is... But you finally operated company. like a business. Uh, that's right. We, well, different Yes and flavors. no. There's, there's Silicon Valley and there's that approach. And I, right. and I get that. But that's, again, being from Chicago and Midwest, I mean, we're here in San Diego now, but it's like that was the, that was, that was the brain damage wow. I kept incurring with the, with the Liquor.com board for 100%. 10 freaking years. 100%. Because it's like that's you're right. not operating like a business. I don't know what you're doing here, but you're operating with this mentality of burn until what and yeah so yeah the the way i the, the best way to describe it is that you as as a business you have to decide how many bets you're making and oftentimes when you're operating a venture business you are putting in multiple bets which is increasing risk and increasing burn in the hopes that more bets pay off and yeah. you grow faster yeah. and all we did was we said all right let's just reduce the number of bets and let's focus on our highest paying customers, most profitable customers. And let's get it towards cash flow break even and the profitability. 
So we turned the company around. We actually ended up having some of our biggest quarters once we did. We raised our prices, which most companies are afraid to do, and we did that. And that that alone uh, made a huge difference for us. Yeah. And so it was in that shift we said, okay, so what do we do? So one, one of the funniest things was when I set out on that path to turn the business around, our VCs were like, all right, like, let's just figure out how we can right-size it and then sell it. The funny thing was once I fixed it, all of a sudden the VCs were like, well, hang on. Like, <laughs> wait a minute. What's this thing called? Wait, wait, wait. What are those two words? It's, um, oh, wait, wait, cash flow. I've heard of that's, this. That's, that's a good looking company thing. there. Like, what, what do you want to do next? Like, <laughs> and we had incredible venture capitalists. They were, they were great people. They were supportive of us the entire time. But once you right size the business, all of a sudden it's like, well, hang on. Like, do you want some more money? Like, and that was the point where I'm like, you know what? Like, no, we're good. I think that. Uh, there were multiple dynamics in the space and the category and the, there was competition. And so I'm like, I think we're going to be better off with a larger company in the space so we can go achieve our vision. And that's when we sold the company. Interesting. So how long after the 2016 right-sizing did you then exit? Uh, a year later, 2017. Oh, just, just a year later. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. We, we were very aggressive about like one of the interesting things is we applied. So, so what, we applied, I didn't know it at the time, but we applied a very private equity playbook to the venture-backed company. How so? Uh, private equity playbook, oftentimes, is you go in and there's a lot of waste in the company. There's a lot of bets, if you will. Yep. What you say is, what is number one, what is the core product that's making the most money? Number two, who are the most profitable customers? And number three, how do we improve the internal operations and costs? And you just do that ruthlessly. Mm. And and that's the thing that I did when I went into like it was like a different TK walking into the office because I was like ruthlessly let's just do the things we need to do to make this the most efficient business that it can be. Run run through those three questions again. It's really I mean that's like if you get nothing else out of this episode, folks, listen to these three questions. No, number one is what 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 is the core product that is generating the most revenue? Mm. Number two is what is the type of customer that is generating the most revenue? And number three is how do you actually improve the internal operations of the business so that you actually reduce your internal costs? Yeah, that's a writer downer right there. That's really, really good. And just with those three questions alone, you're going to scare the gajeebers out of a lot of folks who are coming from a very different place in terms of that whole Silicon Valley mentality. And, you know, I obviously there are enough winners out there where you can look at what folks are doing and say, mm, okay, maybe that Silicon Valley mentality works. And then you turn around and you look at a company like we were and you look That's at right. what's, and you look at what's going on there. And when you really pull back the curtain and you start looking at the fundamentals and you say to yourself, if I have, so it's, it's good money after bad. If I've got new money at this point and they're asking me to put it in, knowing what the fundamentals are of that business, knowing how they operate, is that a good, sound business decision? And more often than not, without those three questions being answered in the right way, you're going to find that the answer is no. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things that's interesting is that Silicon Valley, so you know, how do you define Silicon Valley mentality? So, you know, there's probably an interesting question there. Sure. There have been incredible IPOs that have happened this year. You look at Zoom. You look at Datadog. These are software companies uh, that have margins north of 75%, north of 80%. Yeah. 
they're incredibly solid, well-run companies, and they're Silicon Valley companies. What did they do differently? What they did differently was they were true to the mission of Silicon Valley software companies. Mm. And one of the things that what you're really seeing with the WeWorks of the world is that you have companies that got sold as software companies with so expecting software margins but and valued as software companies, but they're really 20% margin businesses. And that's really where the market has has smartened up and gotten better at it. So let's let's do this and just shift gears just for a second because it seems like you got your stuff really together. I mean, we could probably go into the Mar Marketo thing and all that, and you know, I'm not sure that we will have time for that or need to do that. But let's let's kind of take it then to. I know you're working on the the peak performance stuff now and everything that you got going on with Get Unstoppable and helping other people. But what 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 do you still struggling with now like what what keeps tk up at night like you seem to have like you seem to have it all together i mean i know you had the divorce and i know you had you know just some some tough times in business but you made it through you had the exit i mean you're you look great you're smiling you're happy you look to be in a great place but i'm, I'm sure there's still some struggles there what uh what are you still struggling with um well i think i think you the biggest thing i struggle with is opportunity cost I think it's the thing that us as, us as entrepreneurs all struggle with. Like if you're running an incredibly profitable business and it's growing at 20% month over month or year over year, and you've bootstrapped it, that's incredible business. Like that's great. You're going to be wondering the opportunity cost of like, should I raise around and go faster and go swing for the fences? Mm -hmm. The, the, the VC backed startup CEO that has raised a hundred million dollars and is scaling the company is wondering, man, should I have just build a cash flow positive, positive business so that I control my own destiny? I'm not freaking out about my next funding round. So today, like where I stand right now, I've been very fortunate in my career where life threw me a lot of curveballs, and we still found a way forward. And I, one of the things I learned is no matter how bad the situation, there's always a way forward. And that's what I learned. The thing that I still struggle with and wonder is still the what would 45-year-old or 55-year-old TK tell 36-year-old TK sitting right here? Are you working on the most important thing, the biggest thing? Are you feeling fulfilled? Um, am I running my personal life effectively? Like Those are the questions that still keep me up at night that I still wonder about. Yeah. Uh, and and, and that's, that's kind of what I grapple with even today. Yeah. And and it's super interesting too because what you're doing now in terms of the get unstoppable and of course you can find out more at uh, getunstoppable.com and go see all the fun stuff that TK is doing there but what's really interesting is you 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 kind of had this wake up moment come to Jesus I don't know whatever you want to call it and it's like okay so I made money and I did this and now I want to help others it's like you know life was and, and I went through it myself so I totally get it. I did real estate development for the better part of you know a dozen years at over 50 million dollars in real estate development and you know liquor.com made the money this that and the other had the struggles up down this that, and the other and then I woke up one day and I'm like you know life is like it's it's awesome for me and and those closest to me but I'm not really doing anything for anyone else and and I've been on this journey now for about 11 years of being in that personal development space and wrote a book called what is your what discover the one amazing thing you were born to do and coaching and consulting and this, that, and the other. And the almost 50 year old me, cause I will be 50 in November 
if I was sitting back and telling the 39-year-old me when I started down this track in 2009 what to do, I don't know that I would tell him to go down this personal development path, if I'm being completely honest. Yeah. I'm wired as an entrepreneur. I mean, it's all great and altruistic and, and whatnot to try to help others and so on. And you can still do that with what you do. But, you know, when you come right down to it, you're going to spend, and you know this, man, you're going to spend a lot of money trying to be, you know, the Bangladorian Tony Robbins or whatever you're going to be. Like, like, it's like, you know, you're going to spend that money and that time. And you talk about opportunity cost. What businesses are you not developing right now because you're trying to be this motivational guy? Right. I think, I think the, there's a soul-searching piece that I went through myself on, like, what is unstoppable? So I've been working on this project called Unstoppable. And it started in the beginning of the year. So I left Adobe in the, in the beginning of the year. And so I started with, uh, and that's the first time I didn't have a job since I was 12. And uh, so I started with like, all right, let me just give back. And so that's kind of how it started. And it eventually evolved into a business. Uh, so Unstoppable was very much a business where it's generating revenues and we should be profitable in about a month's time, which is pretty good for a, for a young business. And the business ended up becoming where uh, entrepreneurs, when they think about their businesses, they think about, I need a strategy, I need a, lot, I need a goal, I need a mission, I need a vision, and I need an action plan. Um, entrepreneurs don't have that for their own lives. Yeah. They, don't, they don't think about what is their mission and vision and where they want to go. Yeah. And uh, we ended up, uh, this is what Unstoppable became. Uh, we ended up building out just a simple system that every entrepreneur can follow so they have a personal life strategy. It's not like I'm not your guru. I'm not your coach. I'm not trying to get you to be better. It's literally like, look, you should have your, your plan together. Yeah. And it's been incredible. Uh, we, we've started to onboard more and more founders. And what they're doing, and, and it tends to be founders whose businesses are killing it, but they're almost in the doghouse in their personal life. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I learned when my business was not working well and when on, on the times when it wasn't working well, on the times I turned around was when I ran my life better, my business thrived. When I didn't run my life well, my business didn't thrive. Mm -hmm. Better run entrepreneurs run better businesses. And so that's, that's what it turned into. I don't think it's going to be a motivational thing at all. I think it's going to be something where founders create a life strategy and an execution plan for their own lives. And that can that strategy will help them become better run better business operators and that's mm -hmm. what we're focused on right now at unstoppable yeah i got you man mm, i mean the main question that comes to mind for me is it might be sustainable you may enjoy it and it might provide fulfillment and you know a sense of contribution and so on it may be somewhat scalable in terms of growing that into a you know a 5 10 million dollar maybe 20 million dollar type business who knows but the real question then I would have is, is, is it saleable? And in my mind, when you build a personality-driven type business with you being front and center on this thing, have you asked yourself the question of whether or not it's actually saleable? Uh, one of my big parameters for what I started next was that I would never sell it. So I've always started and sold businesses. Mm -hmm. uh, the next thing I wanted to build was uh, what I wanted it to be was I wanted it to be my life's work. Uh, and so this, like, and I, that's why it's literally like unstoppable. We're never going to sell it. Uh, how it'll scale is not from selling more classes, master classes, or life accelerator programs. 
uh, how it's going to scale is the people that follow our playbook, mm-hmm. we're going to also look into investing in their early rounds. So, so A, like they pay us uh, to actually get their life in order by following our system. These are all startup founders and they're going to be raising early rounds. Mm-hmm. And we will probably, we're, we're launching a new, a new arm where it'll help, uh, we'll, we'll come out with a system for accelerating their businesses. So that's the second piece. And the third piece is capital. So we'll actually invest in the best of the best that are following our systems. So if they're following mm-hmm. our systems and we like them, we'll invest in them. And that's what will scale uh, to actually create wealth in the long run is how I look at it. Yeah, well, it's a very unique approach for sure. And, uh, and, and love the work that you're doing, love the work that you've done. Best place for folks to go, getunstoppable.com, yeah? Yeah, go to getunstoppable.com. And if you run a business and you want to create a business strategy, we have a one-page strategy challenge. A lot of business owners don't have a written-down strategy. Mm. Uh, so you can get it, go to getunstoppable.com slash strategy, and we'll, we'll show you how to create a one-page strategy. Nice, man. Well, are you a fan of podcasts? Are you uh, Obviously, you hang out with us here and did this. Do you, are you a fan of the medium? I, I love podcasts. I actually just invested in a podcast company. Nice. Uh, uh, so I'm a big fan of the medium. I think it's poised for massive growth. Agreed. Uh, yeah, we uh, totally agree, man. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Um, we're actually launching a podcast magazine which is uh, going, awesome. going beyond the microphone and taking people more into the light. It's, it's dedicated to the fans. Now, it's yeah. not for podcasts. It's really dedicated to the fans of podcasts. And so taking them beyond the microphone and stories with folks that you love and so on and so forth. So look for that, man, because uh, that'll be coming out here really, really soon. TK Cater, awesome having you here on Beyond 8 Figures. And uh, wish you, of course, the best of luck with everything that you are doing. And again, you can get more information and check out all the fun stuff uh, at getunstoppable.com. Congrats on all your success, man. It's uh, it's an honor and a privilege here having you you join us. So thank you for taking the time to do so. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I really appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, all we ask is you just send this out to everyone on your mailing list and let them know you were on the show and uh, hit your whole social media following for us. That's That would be great. Appreciate you. <laughs> all right, my man. Really, really appreciate you joining us. And we'll talk to you. Everybody, we'll talk to you guys next time on Beyond 8 Figures. Take care, everybody.